Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 395 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am so excited to bring you Seth Godin today. More about that in a moment, but this episode is brought to you by our friends at ProMedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash growth and by the Dwell app. The Dwell app is an audio Bible app. You can get it today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry, that's C-A-R-E-Y, and get 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. Well, I know a lot of you have already <laughs> expressed a lot of excitement to me online about this episode because I hinted it was coming. Uh, but yeah, today my guest is Seth Godin, and uh, I'm sure most of you know exactly who Seth is. But if you don't, all you have to do is type Seth into Google and you find him. Yeah, imagine that, just typing your first name into a global search engine and... Uh, that is the kind of impact that Seth Godin has had. He is the author of 20 books that have been bestsellers around the world. They've been translated in more than 35 languages. He's the founder of Alt-MBA and the Akimbo Workshops. His podcast, which I highly recommend, is in the top 1% of all podcasts in the world. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. His books include Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. This is Marketing was an instant bestseller. I highly recommend it. I almost have more highlighted passages than non-highlighted passages. His newest book, The Practice, which we get into a little bit, is already a bestseller. And in addition to writing and speaking, Seth has founded several companies, including Yo-Yo Dine and Squidoo. His blog is one of the most popular in the world. And in 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. More than 20,000 people have taken the powerful Akimbo workshops he founded, including the Alt-MBA and Marketing Seminar. And it just goes on from there. So it was a real thrill when Seth said, yeah, he would be on this podcast. And uh, I'll tell you, I have followed him for years and years and years and years. And what we've done, we do show notes for all of the episodes, but we made these a little bit extra special. I have linked to some of my favorite interviews that Seth has done with other leaders. So I link to his conversations with Kathy Heller and Tim Ferriss and Brian Koppelman, which I think are among the best, at least that I've heard. And then in this interview, we go for a little more of the backstory. So uh, I think it makes a great compliment to a lot of the other work he has done. And we have a fascinating conversation about, uh, well, where I live. Seth actually knows my community. I always joke I'm in Toronto, but I'm not. I'm, I'm north of Toronto because nobody knows where I live. Seth does. And the reason he knows is because he teaches kids how to canoe. And we get into that and Canadian art and a lot of really, I think, fascinating places, plus some of his uh, usual subjects. So anyway, we beefed up the show notes. And uh, for those of you who are regular listeners, uh, yeah, I know you're excited to have Seth Godin here. We're also talking to other wider leadership experts. We've got Amy Edmondson, Adam Grant, John Cotter from Harvard. Uh, who else do we have? We have Cal Newport and others. So really excited about this year's lineup, as well as, uh, of course, people like Craig Rochelle. We've had Andy Stanley already. Deanne Turner is back. Chris Heeslip from Founder and Pushpay and a whole lot more. So it's going to be uh, an incredible year on the podcast. Seth, thanks for being part of it. So Leaders, I know you're navigating a lot of change. And if you're getting ready to hire a creative or a digital staff member, just remember there's two options. One, you can hire an internal staff member that's an expert in one or two main areas, or you can get ProMedia Fire and get an entire team of experts for less than the cost of a professional staff hire. With ProMedia Fire, you save on employee taxes, health insurance uh, that you would normally associate with internal staff, and turnover becomes a thing of the past because they bring you a fleet of top quality creatives. Choice is yours. So one person or a whole team. If you want to know more, book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And then this is a stressful time for sure. And Dwell is an audio Bible app with a simple mission to help you get into the word of God and stay in the word. They have loads of inspiring voices, Bible translations, and original background music. And if you're like me, you're a daily Bible reader. They've got listening plans, so you can start a daily habit. Maybe that is something you've always wanted to do. 
or you could do playlists. Uh, there's tons of scripture playlists, like uh, the ones based on mood. So if you're anxious or that kind of thing, you can find verses that speak into you. Dwell mode, you can use scripture to meditate, and they've got a sleep timer, so you don't drain your battery in case you nod off at night. Uh, you can get Dwell today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and get 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. So with all that said, it is my absolute thrill to bring you my conversation with Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to the podcast. It is a thrill to have you. Well, thanks, Carrie. It's going to be fun to talk to you. Yeah. So I want to start here. You've got a lot of varied interests. So I'm Toronto-based. You grew up in Buffalo, New York. That's always an interesting story. Um, you've got engineering, um, hockey, Tom Thompson, Zig Ziglar, uh, Stanford, Yahoo. You were involved in helping to engineer the early days of email. I'd love for you to pick from the list of how some of those influences, pick one or two, and, and how they shaped you into who we've come to know today. Wow. Great place to start. Um, so I could hear a little bit of Toronto in your voice. Um, oh, I, you didn't could. I didn't recognize it until you said Toronto, but yeah, it's great. Um, I spent 42 summers in Algonquin Park, north of Toronto. So and I'm actually Oro Medanti. You've been by my oh, house sure. like you know Oro Medanti, like nobody yes. does. So I say Toronto, but between Barry and Aurelia. Of course. And we always used to make fun of the uh, hockey arena there because it it makes it look like that's the beginning and the end of town if you look at the two signs. Well, it is town stuff. So <laughs> I, I hate to tell you, but yeah, you know Guthrie Arena. My kids played there and the whole deal. That's Get out. Okay. Oh, wow. So um, in Algonquin Park, uh, I taught kids, still do, how to paddle a 16 foot long wooden boat by themselves. Wow. And I got to tell you, canoeing is not a life skill. The number of times I've needed to get into a chestnut wood cedar strip canoe and do something important is very low. On the other hand, uh, dancing with fear, dancing with fear is a life skill. And what happens if you're 11 years old, if you've been privileged and handed life on a silver platter and suddenly you're in a vehicle bigger than you, by yourself, is you have to stare into possibility and decide what you want to do with it. And it's not about tactics or technique. It's about committing to possibility. And I think about those days every day. That's why I still go up. This summer was the first I've missed in a long time. And I go up to teach because turning on lights for other people, the way so many sacrifice to turn on lights for me, that is the arc of my career. What is the hardest part about learning to paddle a canoe by yourself? Which I would say I, I haven't yet mastered. So well, this is next interesting. Year I'm Why that? Stop by in Oregon. You got to stop by, man. Uh, I, I got a, I got my wife for our 30th anniversary. I got her a 17 foot Explorer canoe from Swift Canoe, which you've also passed yes. a million times. Yeah, I know the folks yeah. at Swift. Nice people. Okay, so it's 100 percent about. Um, how you sit. And I actually have a blog post about this coming up soon. There's something in a canoe called tumble home. And it's actually relevant even if we're not talking about canoeing. Tumble home is the shape of the canoe that makes it return to center so that as you tilt it over, you can settle in. It's not going to flip like a kayak. It's going to let you lean into it. And if we're lucky, we have a career and a family and a community that has tumble home into it that we're not always on a tightrope, that we can lean into possibility and that something will push back and help us find stability. And I know within a minute, if I can teach a kid to sit in the boat, to have a way to transfer energy into the boat, um, that they're going to be able to do it. And one last riff on this. If I ask somebody, what happens when you're paddling a canoe? They will say, well, I'm moving the water backwards. Right? You pull the, the paddle and the water moves backwards. Except if you know physics, that's impossible because there's more than a million pounds of water in the lake. If you were actually moving that water back, it would move the next water back and the next water back until there was a wave on the shore. That's not what happens. No. What happens is the paddle stays still and the boat moves forward. It just looks like the paddle's moving backwards. And that metaphor really helps us capture the world that we live in in the sense that we are surrounded by things that might look like they're fluid, 
but there's so much of it. It's mostly static. And what we can do instead is for a few people around us, move things forward. And if enough of that happens, then things get better. Hmm. What makes you still teach kids canoeing? Because you could do just about anything, but that trip. So obviously we know that the philosophy behind it, but you're taking personal time to build in to kids. Yeah. And it's not scalable, right? Like there, yeah, there, are, kid, there are kids who probably would benefit more from me spending a week with them. I understand that it's a selfish activity in the sense that um, there are people who are really in need. And I try to spend 51 weeks of the year thinking about how I can interact at that level. Um, in this place, something Proustian happens for me. The sound of the gravel on the road or uh, the fire or the um, the bell ringing at 7.30 in the morning. Just knowing that I have a place with Tumble Home for me, where I get to revisit the, the moments where I became who I am, because that's where I became who I am, um, in a safe environment, and again, explore what it would mean to bring fresh energy to it. And so I don't think if, I think if I hadn't grown up there, I wouldn't go back, but going back regrounds me for the possibility that maybe, you know, I, I went to Kabira with Acumen, a, a nonprofit I work with. And uh, Kabira, for those who haven't been, is one of the biggest slums in uh, Kenya, in all of Africa, in all of the world. Millions of people live there. Uh, and it's a magical place in the sense that the people who live in Kabira have none of the things that you and I take for granted. And yet there is possibility and connection and engagement and wonder and love. And I was invited to visit the Kabira Boys Book Club, which um, is 45 young men and a few women, I think, who had read the book Lynchpin. And they had only had a few copies of the book. They read it more closely and with more of an open mind than any group I've ever spoken to. And we spent three hours talking through the ideas in this book. And to see how universal so many of the things we struggle with are, so many of the opportunities that we have are, I mean, that was 10 years ago and I still haven't forgotten it. Wow. Um, so I wonder if the Algonquin thing was Tom Thompson. Because that's, uh, I've heard you say that you visited his grave more than any other grave. Uh, I share a love of Tom Thompson, my wife and I do as well. So the Canadian group of seven, are he really technically wasn't group of seven. Right, but they started it after he was killed. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what, what is it about Tom Thompson? So um, first, a little interesting trivia. So uh, Tom was possibly murdered by the husband of the woman he was possibly having an affair with who possibly tied his legs with fishing line and possibly dumped him out of a canoe on Canoe Lake. Um, so they buried him on Canoe Lake. And um, in June, uh, my camp used to run uh, a program for underprivileged kids from Hamilton and other uh, cities in Canada. And they would come up and six of us would have three days to teach kids everything they needed to know to go on a canoe trip. And we needed a place to take them. So we took them to Tom Thompson's gravesite. And so I've told the story of Tom Thompson's demise many, many, many times. Yeah. And it turns out Tom's not buried there anymore. There's all these holes in the story. But when I see the work that Tom did with a paintbrush, what it does for me is it reminds me that when he was doing it, he was not widely applauded. People didn't say, oh, that's it. You nailed it. Painting. Get, you got painting. Check that one off. What they said was, that doesn't look like it's supposed to look. And he persisted. And he had a vision and a point of view. And so if you live north of Oro, and all you've got is some fishing line, a canoe, and a paintbrush, you can still change the world. And we don't need to worry so much about whether the status quo thinks we're doing it right. We need to worry about whether we're touching somebody and making them better. Which ties into your life message. <laughs> That's fascinating. Cool. Yeah. 
Seth, I got to ask you in interview after interview, um, the keynotes you give, but also in your books, I would say, at least from where I sit, you're one of the most, what I would call calorie per minute dense speakers and thinkers I know. You speak <laughs> in fully formed thoughts, what many people would take a chapter or a book to explore. You kind of just move to the next sentence. I would love to know, <laughs> how do you develop that? How, how did that, has that always been like, it is, it is just so rich in meaning. I find it hard to read because it's so, it's easy to read, but like, it's like, well, I should just camp on this sentence for another hour and think about that. I just love to know about that, that pattern. And it seems consistent across the board. Um, it's a skill. Most mm-hmm. of the things we're talking about today are skills, not gifts. I think gifts are overrated. Talents are overrated. Where did the skill come from? Well, the first was, My English teacher in Buffalo wrote in my yearbook that I would never amount to anything and that I was the bane of her existence. And I took exactly one English class in college. So I wasn't supposed to be a writer. And when I needed to write, um, first as a a marketer in a software business, and then because I became a book packager, I decided the easiest thing to do would be write like I talk. Because if you can write like you talk, you save an enormous amount of time when you're writing because you just have to write down what you said. But that meant I had to learn to talk better. And so I put a lot of deliberate effort into first slowing down, leaving out the ums and the uhs, and thinking about what I wanted to say, and then slowly speeding it up because I had practiced organizing my thoughts. And I think that's how we learn how to skate. It's how we learn how to ride a bike. It's how we learn how to do anything. So once I was on that path, then I thought about who are my heroes when I'm reading? And I don't have the patience to read stuff that assumes I'm not reading carefully, that's repetitive, that goes around in a long loop because the person likes to hear themselves talk. And one of the problems I have when I talk about Arawan, my camp in Canada, is I like to hear myself talk about it. So I get less uh, dense when I'm doing that because I like hearing it. But so when I'm writing professionally, when I'm speaking professionally, I'm giving my audience the benefit of the doubt. I'm assuming they're paying attention. I'm assuming they have domain knowledge and I'm not going to rush through it. But given that we live in a digital world where people can hit rewind, I would rather have them hit rewind than have them hit fast forward. Part of that is an ability to draw from (laughs) all kinds of uh, fields and information and background. So, you know, you will be talking about some random fact. And most, most, you know, public writers and, and communicators, they have 20 or 30, a few dozen really interesting stories. How do you feed in? How do you keep learning? Because it seems like there's a constantly refreshing well of new analogies, new insights. Like what, what are your feeder sources for your content? Right. So this is a simple hack that is available to everybody. It has two parts. Part number one, if you see something in the world and you don't understand how it works, do not move on until you figure out how it works. And it could be almost anything. Why is this group of people resistant to that innovation? Why does this technology work and that technology not work? Why is it a good idea for companies to have this sort of name, but not to have that sort of name? Have a thesis, make an assertion. You don't have to be right, but not allowed to move on until you make an assertion. Because walking through the world with wonder is different than walking through the world completely befuddled. It, it's just electricity is not a miracle. Electricity is electrons working their way through a certain kind of substrate. And then when they hit resistance, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then the second one is when something happens, ask yourself, is this a story I can tell somebody in the future? And I've just been witnessing one story after another, the same stories everyone else is seeing. My stories are public, but whatever. So, I was waiting in line in Springfield, Illinois, to catch an airplane uh, 25 years ago. And the woman in front of me in line is freaking out. She's afraid of heights and also small spaces. And she gets to the front of the line, and Springfield's a little tiny town. And she says, uh, I have a seat first class to Chicago, please. Well, the, the plane only has like 12 seats. There's no first class. And the gate agent says, 
oh, okay, well, I'm checking. You have a seat, but of course, it's a little tiny plane. So you're in row three. And the woman starts, she just freaks. And the gate agent, without missing a beat, says, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry, I was wrong. The entire flight is first class. And the woman was fine. And like I, that story, tons of mileage from that story. And everyone else who saw that story didn't remember it at all. And so that's the challenge is if you want to teach, it helps to look for stories because that's how humans think and remember things. And so I'm looking for them all day long. Uh, you're a sought after public speaker and years ago you had one of your mentors tell you, and I believe this is true. You don't use a lot of words or any words on your slides. Can you give us some of your best tips? Uh, cause there's a lot of particularly young communicators listening, uh, public speaking and also some of your pet peeves on public speaking. Okay, I'm happy to to share some thoughts on this. I, I missed the part about one of my mentors. What did uh, did did you not have a mentor just in doing my research for today, or I picked this up somewhere along the way that he said he gave you a single piece of advice, which was don't use words on your slides. Oh no, and, that was my idea. I oh, that was your idea. Okay, I'm owning I got that, that wrong. completely. I had, I wrote a book about it. It's very short, called Really Bad PowerPoint. It was I'm no Tom Thompson, but I was more ridiculed than he was for this. This. The technique of PowerPoint slides with no words on them, that's mine. Okay. I, 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 so I let's unpack that. that. Yeah. Okay. So why should you have no slides, no words on your slides? The answer is, if you want to send a memo, send a memo. If you want deniability, you can get deniability by saying, I told everybody this in the memo I posted to Slack. That's not what it's for. If you need cue cards, well, then either you need to practice more or you should use Keynote's look ahead feature, which shows me in the presenter view, my next slide before anybody else sees it, because cue cards is a lousy way to use slides. The purpose of slides is to put a graphic worth a thousand words in front of people and then use your voice to tell them a story. Because now one part of their brain is hearing a story and the other part of their brain is processing an image. And now you have two things going for you, not one. And you are no longer obeying the words on your deck or horribly reading the words in your deck. You are actually there, present, live, communicating, and your pictures are your friend. They're your sidekick. They're Gracie Allen and your George Burns or the other way around. And so when I give a presentation, and I hope to give them again after the vaccine, 185 slides in 45 minutes. And it changes every time. But even when the slides don't change, I change. And so a slide comes up and I tell a story about it. And sometimes I tell different stories about the same slide. It's just there as an anchor to open the door, to give me permission to be the presenter, which is what I'm supposed to be. Any rules on or, or guidelines that you use to select those images? Well, it has changed. Uh, at the beginning, it was hard to find uh, images at all. This was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Now there are too many images in the world. So the most important rule is no stock photos that look like stock photos. I try really hard to take the pictures myself. And um, the other rule is the, the picture, don't steal the revelation is the phrase that we used when I built the MBA, Alt-MBA. Don't steal the revelation means you want the recipient of your teaching to figure out the last step on their own because that burns it into our brain. This is the difference between education and learning. Education is, will this be on the test? Can I memorize this for 24 hours? I'll write down what you just said. Education doesn't work. Learning is, oh, I did the experiment and yeah, both balls do land on the ground at the same time. I figured it out. I'll never forget that. And so if a slide is too on the nose, then I don't want to keep it. If once you hear the story, the slide finishes the punchline for you, by you, then it's a keeper. Hmm. Any pet peeves? Uh, I'm sure that could be a podcast in and of itself about public <laughs> speaking. <laughs> but I'd love to know if you're like, hey, communicators, just don't ever do this. Is there well, one or two? I, I will don't say ever. peeves make lousy pets. 
Um, they're, they're not housebroken. They're just a pain in the neck. So leaving that aside, uh, I think that we need to remind ourselves that our fear is nothing compared to the boredom of a thousand people. And the fear you might feel about public speaking is a symptom that you're onto something and you can't make it go away, but you can dance with it. But your obligation is if a thousand people or a hundred people, even 10 people are giving you an irretrievable hour of their life, your obligation, whether you got paid to speak or not, is huge. And if you can't handle it, don't show up to speak. And if you can, view it as an obligation, a gift, an honor. Don't apologize for it. Be here in this moment for us because that's why we came. And I, I view that engagement as precious. And I am stunned at how many people uh, demonstrate their fear by denigrating the craft. And that doesn't make him any safer. It just makes us uh, less satisfied. You seem to have uh, an interesting habit or, or a, um, a filter for saying no. So you famously turned down Shark Tank. You said no to a billion dollars in stock options. Uh, you have very specific rules about speaking and the West Coast is going to cost you more than your hometown or the East Coast. You've turned off comments on your blog. Uh, you don't really do social media, which I want to double click on with you a little bit. But I'd love to know about your filters for what you accept and what you don't accept and how they've developed over the years. Well, I think that the specifics of my filters are irrelevant. What matters is that people should have them. Mm. right? So I decided what I'm going to eat and not eat a really long time ago, and I don't revisit it. And I decided to have a blog post every single day, and I don't revisit it. And there are some things we should revisit because they're worthy of it. But if you're revisiting all of your standards every day, you're spending most of your time revisiting your standards. And what I would prefer to do is strip away choice in lots of areas so that I can spend my day doing work that's indisputably mine. Right. And so, you know, Kevin Kelly has this great hack, which is if you are asked to do something in six months and you look at your calendar and it's wide open, you say, all right, you're going to make a lot of bad decisions. But if you're asked to do something in six months and you act like you're being asked to do it tomorrow, then you will make a better decision because you haven't put off the pain that will come from your yes. You've been, you've put your, the pain and the yes right next to each other so you can make a smart decision. And so what I'm trying to do with my boundaries is say, I only get this one precious life one time. I have an agenda of things I'm trying to do. I'm sorry if I can't satisfy and please you in this moment, but I had to come up with an approach so that I wouldn't have to reconsider it every single time. Why did you say no to Shark Tank? Well, first, to be fair, they didn't say, will you be the star of the show? They said, will you come in to audition to be this, one of the, the judges? Okay, fair enough. And, and then they said, we want you to be the nasty judge. And I said, oh, so the, the choice, that you're, the offer is really simple. We will make you famous if you are willing to be someone you don't want to be. And I don't want to be famous. And I don't want to be that person. So it was super easy. Super, su I have not hesitated once over that choice. It took me less than three seconds to say, no, thank you. Because the decision to be famous is a trap because then what happens? And is that really what you want? Or do you want the things that you think being famous will get you? Because those are different than being famous. And I know a fair number of famous people, and they will tell you, if they're being honest, they like lots of parts of their life that being famous gets them, but it comes with an enormous amount of baggage that they'd rather not have. It's good advice. 
I want to talk about The Practice, your latest book, which has uh, many, many chapters. Before we get into that, you, you, you have done that with almost all of your books, is very, very short chapters, what is, and very short blog posts for the most part, right? Some of them are, what, 75 words, 100 words. They're, they're very short. Um, why do you structure books that way? Well, part of it has to do with the kind of books that I write, and part of it has to do with how my brain works. And I probably, because of how my brain works, that's the kind of books that I write. Um, before I was an author, I was a book packager. I did almanacs, nonfiction books, directories, things like that, because that matches sort of the narrative cycle of my brain. But what I have found is that the World Wide Web showed up just in time for this person who has mild ADHD, which is if it hadn't, if we had moved in the direction of farming, I'd be a disaster. Because there's just not a reward system in our culture right now for people who want to sit quietly and every four weeks say, here's an 8,000-word essay, because people aren't reading that. So I'm aware of how people are reading and consuming content, and I know the kind of person I'm writing these books for. So I like engaging, you know, Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, is a book I could never write, but wish I could. But I also know that The Gift, as important a book as it is, hasn't had nearly the traction of a book that I've written because the public, in capital letters, just isn't ready to sit still for a book like The Gift. Hmm. Well, that's a good answer. I want to go to a couple of quotes that you have in the practice. Do what you love is for amateurs. Love what you do is the mantra for professionals. Can you explain the difference? Sure. Um, do what you love says that the world owes you its attention and its support, and that you should be aware enough of your feelings to be able to plot a course before you engage with it. And it's almost always going to lead to disappointment because you're not aware enough of the world and your feelings to plot a, a, a course that you can't change. Uh, on the other hand, if you choose to practice and commit to loving what you do, then by definition, whatever you do is going to be something you love. You win. <laughs> and like, so I'm amazed at how many people go in the music industry and end up first in the filing room and then in the A&R department, and then ripping artists off in the legal department or whatever it is. They're not in the music world. They're in an industry that happens to touch musicians. And they got caught in that because they thought they would be doing something they love, which is music. But that's actually not what they love. What they love is performing and pleasing people in the moment. And they should have picked something that rhymes with that, not decided that they have to, quote, do what they love. Well, you're writing this to a group of creatives and you argue you have an expansive definition of creativity. What would you say to somebody who's in a job right now and they're like, but Seth, I, I, I'm stuck. I'm that A&R guy. I'm that music industry and it's dying and I, I don't like it. How does that mantra work for them? Well, if you have time to listen to this podcast, then you have a job that at some level is creative. Because other than someone in a coal mine or working on the assembly line or stuck uh, in a package fulfillment center, the rest of us are fortunate enough to have jobs where we have to make a choice at some point. That our job is not written down all day, every day, because if it was, a computer would do it or someone cheaper than us. So you already have a job where you're tasked with being creative. What does it mean, right? And so, you know, the lawyer for the Doobie Brothers, I think it was the Doobie Brothers, who wrote that letter to Bill Murray when Bill Murray stole some of their music for a commercial that went wild around the internet. He was doing his job, but he was doing it with creativity. And so it was far more effective than if he had just followed the manual. Right. And so what it means to be a creative is to solve an interesting problem in a new way that benefits people around you. What it means to be a creative is to do something that might not work. Mm -hmm. So people who say they're stuck are also saying to me, I'm afraid of doing something that might not work. Oh, now we know what the real problem is. Not that there's something wrong with your job, 
but that your job is brainwashing into thinking that it would be fatal to do something that might not work. Hmm. You, um, you make the argument, and this is Elizabeth King, process saves us from the poverty of our intentions. Such a powerful thought. Can you explain what that means to you, Seth? So that's, the book exists because Elizabeth King said that. Yeah. And I now value her as a friend. Uh, I first had to track down the quote because it was some other guy took credit for it. And when I asked him about it, he admitted to me that he didn't really say it first. He was quoting her. Um, What does it mean? It means that if you have a practice and you wake up in a bad mood, you still have a practice. If you have a practice and something uh, interrupts you for a day or a week, you still have a practice and you can get back to the work. Whereas if you say, I'm waiting for the muse and for inspiration, I'm waiting to do something I love, I'm waiting to be in the mood, not only don't you have a practice, but the first day that isn't perfect, you're out of the game. And Elizabeth works very slowly. And the work that she creates is extraordinary. People will be looking at it 100 years from now. And the work she is able to produce happens because she has a practice. And so I don't care if you're a painter or you're a manager of 30 people in a spiritual institution, you can have a practice. Yeah, that's interesting. And you use Isaac Asimov, I know, as an example of the practice, which is sort of that that discipline, that rhythm of just going back to the work. And uh, you've written 20 books. Congratulations. Uh, my fifth comes out next September, this September oh, wow. by the time this airs. Thank you. But it is a tough slog sometimes, Seth. And I think you've quit writing numerous times and then you're back at it. Um, right? Where you're like, oh, I don't know. Is this my last book? I don't well, know. Maybe to it's put a thumbtack in it, I have yeah. never quit writing. I have quit publishing. There, and those are very different things. Can you explain? So publishing is not printing. Publishing is the commercial act of finding a new idea and bringing it to people who want to pay to read it. And publishing has changed dramatically over our lifetime. And traditional book publishing involves really good people who are in it for the right reasons. You have to go to them as an author and make a sacred contract with them. You're going to do your best. They're going to do their best. But watching their industry implode while they didn't know what to do about it was so heartbreaking for me that I was like, I can't carry this on my back for you, which is what I've done with some of my previous books. And so that's why I would quit publishing because I can reach 10 times more people with my blog post for free in one day than I can reach with a book, right? Any blogger. That was my summer conversation. I'm like, I think I know how many this is going to sell. And with a really good post, I can reach more people in 12 hours on my blog than I can with a book. Right. So you don't do it for that reason. You do it because your blog post isn't going to get read 20 years from now, but your book might. And because a book gives you social cover and a an ability to, to get on a podcast with Carrie and say, this is what I wrote about. Whereas if I write a blog post, I'm not going to go on a podcast tour for it. And so for all of those reasons, I've said publishing, ah, but um, in Isaac's case, Isaac, for those who don't haven't read his work, invented the robot. If you have a vision of a robot in your head, Isaac Asimov invented that. And That's a lot for one lifetime, but he also published 399 other books. And I worked with him before his death. And I said, Isaac, how 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 do you do that? And he said, it's simple. I sit in front of this typewriter, manual typewriter, for six hours every morning. And I don't have to write good stuff. I just have to write. And we marvel at that. We don't marvel at the person who has to sweep up in the billiard hall every day for nine hours to make a living. It's the same thing. It's just this one has a little bit more glamour associated with it. Hmm. And so the argument is you sit down there and you write day after day, and eventually your bad work leads to your good work. Is that where that goes? Exactly. People who say they have writer's block simply have fear of bad writing. Because if you show me enough bad writing, it's inevitable some good writing will squeeze in. 
Well, you've been really generous with your time. We're coming up on time and I want to be highly respectful of it, Seth. So you have a lot of content creators here. Marketing has changed a lot over the last 20 years and the internet has really changed things. What would you say to content creators? I'm thinking particularly we have a number of leaders who, you know, have to produce a sermon every week or a talk every week or they're, they're writing on a regular basis. Um, and there can be, because of social, so much pressure to really deliver time after time after time. What would you say to them who would say, I, I, I can't really afford a bad message. I can't really afford a, a bad thing because we feel that pressure is very real. And having lived in that incubator for 25 years, I feel it. I will, let, let's spend a few more minutes if you have them, because I'd love, I have, I've I'd love to dive into this. Yeah. Okay. Um, the first thing is that your fear of disaster is real in the sense that if you say something that is hurtful or divisive, um, it could haunt you for a long time to come. But very few people who are in this line of work fall into that trap. It is much more likely you fall into the trap of being banal or that you fall in the trap of being uh, obvious or repetitive. And the people who leave for that reason never tell you why. And it leads to stasis and boredom, and it's not good for you either. And so what people are looking for is confidence and connection. They want to hear confidence from you. They want to have confidence in themselves, and they want connection with their community. And there's really no limit to how much of that human beings want. I mean, chocolate ice cream is close to having, being limitless. This really is limitless. And so how do you hone your craft? Because it's a skill. Yeah. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably people who are better at it than you. And they might be better at it because they're lucky. They might be better at it because it just comes easy. But they might be more skilled. And in my experience of knowing everyone from Peter Gabriel to Yo-Yo Ma, the people who are more skilled tend to practice more. And that practice might be I don't have a sermon due every week. I have a sermon due every day. Because if they're writing a sermon every day, that means they got one, they can pick the best one once a week and share it with other people. Uh, it means that you can form a support group with five others and on Friday practice on each other to figure out what you need to take out because it might be a pothole. And learn to trust them the way you trust yourself so that you can demonstrate more confidence because you've practiced in front of others who are on the same journey, right? That I've been guilty of winging it. I wing it too often. And what I know is that when I turn it into a practice worth learning, it goes better than if I just wait to the last minute, wait till there's enough fear on the table and then say whatever I can say. And so that, that, that's a big part of it. And then the second part is this. Um, physics and math are about demonstrable elements of truth and proof. And everything else we do as humans is about stories. This, this story, and a story doesn't mean once upon a time. My friend Bernadette Jiwa has written beautifully about this. Stories, a story could be the smell of an apple pie when you go to buy a new house. That's a story right? Because it reminded you of something. Mm -hmm. Me going up to teach canoeing, I'm telling myself a story when I go back into that place. So we tell stories for a living. And the stories might be for you. That could be a little selfish, but it's allowed. But ultimately, the stories are for the people in the room. Have you earned their enrollment? Why are they there? Are they looking for certain kinds of status or certain kinds of affiliation? Are they hoping to change or for things to stay the same? When they look in the mirror, who do they see? Are you trying to change that? And what we know is that enrollment is critical. If people are on the journey with you, you are leading. On the other hand, if they are doing what you say, they are complying, and then you're managing. And it is harder than ever to manage a voluntary institution because people will just leave. But it is easier than ever to lead a voluntary institution if you have enrollment. Hmm. 
One of the challenges is feedback. And you're right in the practice that you stopped reading your Amazon reviews seven or eight years ago. Um, you have a blog, but you don't have comments available. Um, you're on social, but you don't really engage in social. And we don't need to repeat that. You've shared that in many other interviews. But my question would be, Seth, because I think all of us who communicate, all of us who write, who speak, we're, we're kind of sensitive to feedback. We want to know, is this connecting? And you talk about the importance of messages that are connecting. But if you don't actually, if you're not monitoring those things that a lot of us would typically look to for feedback, yep. how do you get your feedback? Okay, so to give feedback to someone who has status or authority is a rare thing. It goes through a bunch of filters and you're not actually finding out how it went. You're just not. You're only hearing from people who are angry enough or bitter enough to speak up or syncophantic enough to tell you you did a good job. It's not useful. It's not. The feedback of, did it sell, is also not that useful because that is simply the feedback of its commercial viability in that moment. You know, 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians is not a good song, but it was a top 10 billboard song. Does that mean it's a good song? No, it just means it sold a lot. What social media did was it gave us the ability to eavesdrop on what people are saying about us behind our back. And for a little while, that felt like a great hack for feedback. So when I would leave a speech, I would go see what people were saying about it on Twitter. And then one day I'm exhausted, I'm looking at it, and I was realizing I was just trying to feed my ego because the people who didn't like it didn't like it for reasons that had nothing to do with me. It had to do with them. They weren't enrolled in the journey. They weren't there. They were demonstrating their status by not liking what I had said. Again, I learned nothing unless I wanted to learn about what people who didn't like what I had to say actually wanted, but that's not who I was there for. And so I guess what I would encourage people to do is realize that Beethoven and Madame Curie and Van Gogh and um, Ignaz Semmelweis they did unbelievable groundbreaking work without checking hashtag whatever, right? And at some point, what we're asking you to do is have enough domain knowledge and, in, and intuition to know, to say, this is how I lead, follow me if you want. Because you can't micromanage it. It's not going to get you where you want to go. Is, is it um, a mistake to say that quantity does tend to produce quality over time? In other words, I think one of the temptations I felt as a communicator, uh, go back 15 years, I used to write 60, 70 sermons a year. And it was great. There was no internet. You came to my church, you didn't. If I preached a real stinker, you might leave, right? And that would be the end of it. Or, or the same with, with you know social media. And now this comes along, we're all being graded against everybody else. And so there's a tendency, like when before I, I, I step back, I, I was down to like 35 messages a year. So I've, I cut it in half. But that's more pressure then, because if you misfire, yep. you really misfire. And I'm, I'm not a daily blogger, but I'm a regular blogger like you are. And I've found that I'm a terrible predictor of what connects with people, what doesn't connect with Correct. people, but that that quantity can sometimes lead to quality. You actually, you accidentally stumble on something and you're like, oh, that, that was actually good. Would you say that one of the keys, like, let, let's just ask you this question. Why do you publish daily? And is it true that you still will sometimes write five posts a day and publish one? And can you take us into that process? Sure. Yes, it's true. Um, let's talk about the game theory first. If it costs not, if it costs nothing to buy lottery tickets and a winning lottery ticket is worth a lot and no one notices if you have a losing lottery ticket, then you should buy as many lottery tickets as possible. That seems very straightforward. Right. Um, I think that we're not in that situation because buying lottery tickets is not free because losing lottery tickets are seen by others. And um, we want to own our words. So I'm not proposing uh, you know, a, a confetti parade of stuff constantly 24 hours a day. What I do know is that quantity leads to confidence. Mm. And confidence lets you publish your best work. So I mentioned Lewis Hyde earlier, one of my heroes. I believe Lewis has published five books, maybe four. 
And I have no doubt that he has written way more words than he has ever published, way more. You write and you write and you write, and then you decide what to publish, as opposed to saying, well, it's a deadline. This is all I got. And um, so in my case, the daily blogging commitment is super powerful for me because it puts me on the hook to know that tomorrow there's going to be a blog post. It's not up for debate. And that opens the door for me to write. Because if I had to judge each day and say, is this good enough to interrupt a million people? I'd be paralyzed. But instead, it's like, oh, it's tomorrow. What is, what's the best thing you got? And that enables me to find my rhythm. And my rhythm has helped me find my confidence. And my confidence has led to me publishing, which has led to me learning, which makes my work better. In, um, I've got a quote here. Art is a generous act of making things better by doing something that might not work, which ties into what you were just saying. So in Purple Cow and the Dip, you talk about the struggle and, and you're right. You know, my saying for years is they can't all be gems, right? So we just try it. Some of them, some of them really connect. They help people. Others, it's like, thanks for showing up. We appreciate you. But you also say, uh, and I want to get this right, South Park. I think this was from purple cow maybe scored 1.5 out of 10 with women when it was auditioned and in my own research i've heard the people at the office say according to the show's creators that it was uh the worst rated comedy ever and seinfeld also scored horribly and both were on the verge of cancellation for several seasons into it how do you know when to keep going and when to give up well first of all you don't know yeah it really helps to know if anyone has ever been on this road before. Because if you are trying to do it for the first time to get through this dip, first time ever, right? That your goal is to have a marionette featuring movie that uh, outperforms all Marvel movies and you keep getting rejected. I think you should pack it in <laughs> because you're hoping to be the a breakthrough pioneer, and you don't have enough resources to get there. On the other hand, if others have come before you and these symptoms also afflicted them, now you know that you're not copying them, but you might be on a, a, a path that rhymes. And at least then you can find enough of an external hook to commit to this journey because the world doesn't owe you anything. And um, having at least a little bit of a path makes sense. I'm glad that there are crazy pioneers who have proven to us things that no mortal should have expected, but that doesn't mean it has to be you because that's a very expensive road to go down. Those are all kind of genre-breaking comedies when you think about it, like South Park, Seinfeld, and The Office. They were all doing things that nobody else on TV was doing, which which kind of made it strange. And and in some ways, you you pioneered that too. Short books, uh, you know, the coffee table book, limited runs that you've done, uh, slides with no words. Um, are, are there any signs in your gut that tells you, no, Seth, keep going? And uh, are there anything that tells you not, you just, just keep moving in this direction? I'm just, I'm just wrong so often, so often. And that's okay, because higher than that in my hierarchy is the resilience to make sure you get to keep playing, right? So when I saw the World Wide Web, I thought that was dumb. And uh, I was sure that the first internet bubble was going to burst a year and a half before it burst. And, um, you know, I can go down this long list of things that I stuck with for a long time and never went anywhere, or things that I gave up on that ended up being the right thing, but I wasn't playing anymore. So I have no real useful skill in this area, except I say to myself, if I'm wrong, will I get to keep playing? And, you know, the black swan theory makes sense, being unfragile. Certainly we've learned in 2020 that everything that people expect will happen doesn't. And um, we're lucky enough that sometimes we get to keep playing anyway. So I don't, I think it's overrated to say this person put their life savings into Bitcoin and now they're a hero. No, I think they were just lucky. Hmm. Hmm. Seth, you've been so generous with your time. I'm, I'm so grateful. I'd love to ask you as we kind of wrap up, 
What is one question about marketing nobody ever asks you that you wish? Would somebody please ask me this question? <laughs> well, one of the beauties of having a blog is I don't have to wait for someone to ask me a question. I can just post it myself. Uh, I think that I would like people to figure out that at some point, marketing is their responsibility and that they are marketers. And that marketing isn't something that's done to you, but it might be something that's done by you. Because if you have a story to tell and a change you want to make, then what are you waiting for? It's a great place to stop. So um, the book is called The Practice, and uh, you can be found. It's so wonderful that you just type Seth into Google or blog into Google, and we will stumble upon you. Uh, Seth, thank you so much. You blessed a lot of us, myself included. This has been pure joy. Thank you, Carrie. It was a double-double. I really appreciated it. Well, that was rich and wonderful. And if you want more, we've uh, augmented the show notes with some conversations that Seth has done with other leaders. So some of my favorites, I've included links to Kathy Heller, Tim Ferriss, and Brian Koppelman. I thought those were really good interviews. It's about four or five hours of listening probably in total if you want more. But I've listened to all of them, some of them multiple times. Uh, We've also got a link to his website and uh, all the other good things that Seth does. And if you don't listen to his podcast, Akimbo, I would encourage you to add that to your list. And again, notes are there uh, in my show notes over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 395. Coming up in just a moment, the What I'm Thinking About segment of this show where I talk about the new scarcity. And if you're a content creator or you host live events, anything from church to conferences, You know that the game has changed, but you probably don't know why. I want to talk about that. It's uh, called The New Scarcity. And in the meantime, I shared some of the guests that are coming up. But next time, we have Chick-fil-A's David Salyers. And we talk about marketing. And it is a masterclass in that. Having just had Seth Godin this week, uh, we're going to go a little bit deeper and from a different angle next week. And we talk about sales being as controllable as costs, how you add value without lowering your prices, and how to add value that will sometimes produce 10x results. Here's an excerpt. Our strategy was, we, I would label it, we weren't a get rich scheme. We were a be rich scheme. We wanted to be rich toward our employees. We wanted to be rich toward our customers. We wanted to be rich toward our suppliers. And I, I'd love to tell you some stories about that. We want to be rich toward the communities that we serve. And so we had business as a be rich scheme and we were competing against a lot of people who were uh, competing as a get rich scheme. Subscribers, you get that automatically. And uh, yeah, it's free wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, like I do. I think Overcast is like the third biggest source of uh, podcast listens for this show. So thank you for helping us grow to having the uh, best year ever. And that is because you keep sharing this with friends and family and team members. And remember, we do have show notes and transcripts as well. So hopefully that helps. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And this is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And the Dwell app, you can get this audio Bible app at 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. So I am thinking about the new scarcity. Like a lot of you, I'm a content creator. I have been in the church space for 30 years, these days full time. I do this, I podcast, I write posts, I speak, I write books, so I create content. And if you think about what those of us who create content for a living have in common, along with those who host conferences and live events, is we really focus our product around a message. Now for preachers, that's preaching and the word of God. Uh, you know, for me, it's content and books and podcasts and, and and all that stuff. And if you're doing a conference, right, what do you do? You line up a whole bunch of speakers like Seth Godin and you hope to fill up a room. So what a lot of us are noticing is that content does not deliver what it used to. Great messages used to guarantee growth. They don't do that anymore. And what used to attract people now gets a shrug of indifference instead. And what I want to tackle is why. And the challenge, of course, is scarcity. So think back to, for those of you who are old enough, before there were cell phones. Anyone remember that? I know a lot of you don't. You're like, what? There was a time before there were cell phones? Yes, there was. So in the era of landlines, local calling was included at a flat rate. But you'll remember this from your parents or grandparents. Long distance was expensive and scarce. 
So your parents and grandparents used to fret over long distance bills, whether they could afford to make that call. I remember when I started ministry, uh, my mentor, he lived an hour or a few minutes north of me, and he would say, hey, Carrie, can you make a phone call to the people in Barrie because it's long distance for me, all right? Because long distance was scarce. You weren't allowed. Like if you were going to call Africa, right, or Asia or Europe or Australia, that could run you like 50 bucks for a phone call. And that's how phone companies made their money. Then cell phones came along and suddenly, sensing new competition, phone companies said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make uh, all your calling free or we'll give you flat rate long distance. So suddenly something that used to cost $50 cost five or was included. And the goal was to try to prevent people from ditching their home phones, which of course only worked for so long. And a similar game happened with cell phone providers. At the very beginning of cell phones, and some of you will remember this, there were weekday minutes and weeknight minutes and weekend minutes. Yes, it used to cost based on when you would call. I know that's a foreign concept today, but business people would often call during the daytime. And sometimes if you were pushing your number of minutes or really worried about the bill, you'd say, you know what, can I call you after 6 p.m. because it's cheaper or it's included. So they created scarcity, uh, a false scarcity, in order to jack up profits. And then what happened was text messaging came along. And so suddenly all the minutes were equal and phone companies started to limit. If you remember the very first text messages you got maybe as a teenager or young adult, it was like, well, your plan now includes 400 free text messages or a thousand text messages. And most of us couldn't imagine sending even close to that number of texts until of course we did. And now text messaging and voice calls are almost all unlimited, which moves us to a far more recent frontier, which is data. And after years, people worried about going over their monthly data allowance. Oh, I only have five gigs. I only have 10 gigs. And now before our eyes, we're seeing most phone companies, cell phone companies include data uh, as unlimited. And the same is happening with a lot of home internet packages. So the point, what used to be valuable isn't. That, that there used to be a scarcity, right? Oh, I, I can't call Europe. Like, I don't have that kind of money. And now you can just call them whenever you want, often for free, depending on the app you use. Scarcity creates value. And if you only have to look back about a year to realize when the pandemic started, suddenly toilet paper was very valuable or look at Bitcoin or Tesla. Fundamentally, value is about perception. If people perceive value, they're happy to pay for it or line up for it. And if they don't, they won't. Which brings us back to content. So if you think about how, for example, a church or conference operated in the 1990s, it was this way. You have to attend in person to be able to hear a great speaker. So if you wanted to hear Seth Godin say in 1995 or 2003, what did you have to do? You had to get on a plane, fly to Atlanta, fly to New York, hear him at a conference, take notes, because you probably weren't going to get that information elsewhere. There was really no podcasting. Uh, there was no internet that really provided video that was relatable. And then suddenly in the era of TED Talks and blogging and podcasting and YouTube, content is everywhere and it's free. Now, if you're a church leader, if you wanted to hear a local message, you wanted to hear a local preacher, let's say your sister attended a great church and said, oh, you got to hear a preacher. The only way you could do that is you could subscribe to the cassette ministry, if you remember that, or go into town and listen to the preacher at a set time. So that is how a lot of things grew in the old economy. Well, now, thanks to the internet, because the internet happened, content is everywhere and people are drowning in content. The disruption of 2020 accelerated that trend even more as people found themselves at home and they realized, oh, I can tune into any communicator anywhere for free, and they did. And that's true in the secular space, that's true in the church space. So now here's the challenge for those of us who create content. Many churches and many events, live events, are still primarily communicating a message designed for another era. In a church case, it's join us for our new series Sunday at 9 a.m. or don't miss last Sunday's message available online on demand or I can't wait to share a brand new message with you or don't miss this year's event. Here's our killer speaker lineup, right? So <laughs> what we do is we're saying, hey, we have something that's really scarce and really valuable and the rest of the world is like, well, I, I can kind of get that anywhere, okay? Now, I'm not insulting your preaching. I'm not insulting your ideas. I'm not insulting your communication skills. I'm just saying what used to be scarce isn't. 
And if you behave like weekday minutes mean something in a world where all calling is included and most people don't even call anybody anymore, you're going to find yourself at a competitive disadvantage. So what becomes a competitive advantage moving forward in a world where content is everywhere and no longer scarce? Well, two things. Number one, meaning and insight. There is so much information out there, but most people have no idea what it means. There is a wealth of information. There's a shortage of meaning and insight. It's one thing to know something. It's another to know what it means or why it's significant. So that's what we try to do here. Try to bring you meaning and insight. We try to bring you the behind the scenes stories with people like Seth Godin and other leaders like that. We try to, on my blog, bring out meaning and insight and connect the dots. And that's one thing that that content creators like Seth are brilliant at, just connecting the dots. And you're like, you know what? I saw it. I just didn't know how to articulate it. And I didn't know what to do with it. So I think you have a lot of future ahead of you if you can provide meaning and insight. The next generation has more access to information than any generation who's ever lived. They just don't know what to do with it. And then the other thing, and I think this is the real competitive advantage you can have, is content is everywhere, but community and connection are very, very scarce. And I think the goal of content, particularly in the case of church leaders, isn't consumption. It's community and connection. It's community and connection. You see, because there's there's so much content out there, but what people are really hungering for is relationships. And what you can do, you can connect them digitally, you can connect them in person, but what used to be scarce isn't. Content isn't scarce anymore. What's truly scarce is community and connection. So build the future on that. I've got more thoughts like this over on my website. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com. If you want to subscribe, we send this out to about 80,000 leaders every day. Uh, a little bit of information, some leadership insight. You can do that over at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash email. Would love to have you join the list over there. Thank you so much to our partners, to Seth Godin. Cannot wait to bring you more next time. And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.